You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. And uh, today I'm really glad to have a friend and a colleague of mine who's a research fellow here at the ERLC, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. And on this episode of Counter Moves, we're going to be talking about a little bit of her intellectual biography, how she came to be someone who loves literature and, and writes about literature, and then just talk about some of her interests as someone who um, engages and, and talks about the intersection of Christianity and culture. And today I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Mike Harder. Mike, glad to have you here. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm really, really excited to spend some time with Karen. She's one of the people I just love to, to read and just kind of hear what she's, what she's thinking. So I'm excited for this podcast. So just by way of a little biography for Dr. Pryor, uh, she is professor of English at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, she earned her PhD and MA at the State University of New York uh, in Buffalo. And she's the author of many books. There's a book called Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, uh, a book titled Booked, uh, Literature and the Soul of Me. And then her most recent book, and a book we'll be talking a little bit more about today, is titled On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. And she's published widely in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Gospel Coalition. And I'm proud to say she's a friend of mine. And as I mentioned, she's a research fellow with the ERLC and someone who's just a, a personal joy uh, and someone I find really interesting to be commenting on these types of issues. So, Karen, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And can I just say, Mike, when you're bored, what do you sound like? <laughs> Sleepier. You're like so bad. I'm, very, I'm very excited, very excited. So anyway, it was just like, wow, you're very, you're very, very late, that guy, I think. <laughs> so, um, Karen, first question I wanted to ask you about is, is how you came to be a professor at Liberty University. Um, and, and with that, what kind of sparked your love for literature such that you wanted to have a career in the field? Well, I think I'll, to answer the first question, I'll start with, um, with the second one because it does kind of flow from that. Um, and it's funny because someone recently asked me on Twitter what was the first book I fell in love with. And I thought about it for a split second, and my honest answer was Dr. Seuss. Um, and so I responded that way, and, I, and the person never responded to me. And I, I don't know if he thought I was being sarcastic or not, but mm -hmm. seriously, I, I mean, my, some of my earliest memories of, you know, being four or five years old is reading a book with, you know, with my finger on the words and following along and reading them out loud. Um, my mother read to me before that. She actually read to me every night, even much later than that. So I just grew, I was the proverbial child with the nose, my nose in the book all the time. My father thought I would, you know, go, when I grew up, I would go on candlelit dinners and bring my book along. And he felt sorry for whoever it was who would be um, accompanying me. Um, and so 
I grew up loving books, but English classes, even though I really liked them, um, were pretty easy for me. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had some great English teachers, but I never really thought of English as being something that one would pursue seriously until I went to college and took my first college level English class and thought, wow, this is more than just fun. This is this is an intellectual challenge that I love. And I knew that I did not want to be a teacher. So <laughs> I decided to just go on to grad school and keep studying English. And when I got there and everyone else was uh, doing graduate assistantships and, and teaching, I thought I'd try it. And um, the first semester that I taught English composition, I discovered what God created me to do. It, oh, yeah. it was to teach. Yeah. So it was pretty neat. I just fell into it accidentally. Well, providentially. That That's awesome. Our first experiences reading often really mark us and right. create just this desired love for learning. And one of the things that was so interesting about the book you just wrote on reading well, you not only talk about great works of literature, but you talk about virtue and how virtue is a part of reading. Could you explain that for those listeners who haven't read the book yet, like what this idea of virtue is and kind of what drew you to that idea in reading? Yeah. So the first book that I wrote that you mentioned, Booked Literature and the Soul of Me, is a it's another book about books in it, but it's more of a memoir and it gives some of that intellectual journey that I just talked about, about growing up in the church, growing up loving books, but never really figuring out how to reconcile those things. So when I um, was offered a a contract to write another book about books, I actually didn't even have virtues in Mm. mind. Um, But I had to have, you know, a framework, a structure. I like to think in organized ways. And um, I started thinking about, I've been reading a lot of Jamie Smith, um, who talks about liturgy and habits and habit formation and how that actually cultivates our desires and our loves. Um, And so I thought about my reading as a habit and a virtue. And I just decided to research the virtues, which I'd never really studied um, on my own. I'm not a philosopher um, or a theologian, um, but I started reading Aristotle and Aquinas on these virtues, and I thought, I want to you know, write this book about books with that framework. Mm. Um, So I learned a lot in researching the virtues and then was able to take that new knowledge to me um, and apply it to books that, you know, I've known and loved for a long time. So that's, I kind of, you know, I wrote, I wrote the book for people who love books and I wrote it for, for Christian thinkers who care about virtue and theology. And I, you know, it was a little bit difficult, but I just tried to meld them together in a way that could speak to both. So I want to talk about the method that you describe in the book, that you, you talk about how literature requires us to read slowly and with intention. This may be a somewhat redundant or obvious question, but but what does that look like practically? Because I conceptually, I know I love to read, but I know that I have, I'm bombarded with a thousand tasks that keep mm-hmm. my mind from being able to focus on the book in front of me. So can you actually talk to us a little bit about that act of reading and, and why it's important to read slowly and with intention? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question, um, because I think even, you know, even though many of us are reading more, mm-hmm. um, largely because of social media and the internet makes so much more available. And I'm, I'm voracious about that kind of reading too. I love reading blog posts and newspaper articles. Um, but that really is a different, I mean, you could, when you're reading for information, you know, we, 
you can skim and you can get the main points. The problem is that literary reading or, you know, deep theological, philosophical reading requires a whole different skill set, and it's one that does require deliberation and intention. And I think most of all, something I'm just becoming more and more aware all the time of, of um, the myth that so many people hold that to read well, you have to read quickly and you right. have to read you know, a lot. Um, and because we do that other kind of reading so often, myself included, that blog reading, internet reading, um, we can, it's so easy to transfer that style to, you know, a 19th century novel or, you know, a 20th century work of, of theology when really we should be slowing down. Um, I actually read with a pen in my hand, um, just to underline or check mark. We should be um, reflecting on words. You know, if, if there's a if there's an interesting word choice or a word used in a way we don't understand or surprises us, stop and think. Okay, what is the writer communicating by using this word in this unexpected way? If something just captures our attention or confuses us, we should stop and reflect on it. And, and you know, not that we have time to do this all the time, but even just to simply put a check mark or a question yeah. mark or an underline to return to later. There's so many ways we can we can slow down and reflect as we read, as opposed to just skimming. That's, yeah, you're you're hitting the nail on the head there because I know the temptation right now, especially in the era of media consumption that we're in. It's it's kind of like. It's like reading via blog and via Twitter is like just the instant hit of dopamine. And so it, it trains mm-hmm. our minds and our attention spans to, to grasp for about, you know, either 10 to 15 seconds or two to three minutes, uh, depending how long we look at the article. And I notice that this sense of media consumption actually has diminishing returns. I feel, I feel more emptied out. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I've been just reading a bunch of, of articles for the day. And that's not to dismiss the importance of articles. I, I, I read articles all the time. They're, they're useful. They're helpful for what I need to know what's happening in the culture and on my job. But I feel like there's a, there's a difference in what you're talking about when we're devoting ourselves to a book where there's sustained reflection. And I notice sometimes, uh, I'm, I'm doing this right now, that there's a new book by Stephen Smith, who's a, a legal philosopher. It's called Pagans and Christians in the City. And I find myself, as I'm reading slowly uh, and, and marking things up, and I use little book flags to, to stick in the book, that I find myself like actually calmer, and, mm. and you could use the term joyous, I sense, but just happier. Like the reflective, slower, intentional act of reading, I, I think is, it produces human happiness. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, Mike, Karen, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, it sounds a lot like what Kevin Van Hooser says when he says you should be a friend of a text, mm. like become friends with it, mm. and you interact another person and their ideas and the intention behind what they were saying instead of like a utility where you're using that right. person to leverage something for yourself, which I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Karen. Like, When do you think that we switched more towards utility rather than friendship or knowing somebody through what they wrote? That's a good question. Oh, that is, that is an excellent question. Um, and I, I'm so glad you brought up the point about joy and happiness, because I realized that right after I was speaking, how I make it sound like work. I'm sure some <laughs> people are like, oh, you know, you, you know, this is very laborious. And, and, and it's really not when you take joy in 
wordsmith and in ideas and um, you don't have to be a, a skilled reader. You don't have to be an English major to appreciate effective use of language because we're we're all we're language creatures. We use words all the time. So we, you know, it's not like it's not like giving me a golf ball. I have no idea what to do with it. We're all using words and language, so everyone can, if we want to, stop and just kind of appreciate and take joy in the way people craft words effectively, the humor. I love reading satirical writers and, and comedies. Um, and there, you know, to, to segue to Mike's excellent question, I think the utilitarianism of our, of our culture is, is one of the big obstacles to doing that because we think just sitting and enjoying the pleasure and joy of the artistry of words is a, is a waste of time. It's not doing anything for us. Mm. It's not advancing our career goals or it's not, you know, or, or maybe we're doing it just to add to the number of lists that we're re- of books that we're reading this year. Um, but to just sit and enjoy wordsmithery the way we w- might enjoy a painting or a good film seems to so many people either too hard or just not useful enough. Um, and, you know, th- I think that utilitarianism is something just simply it defines modern culture. And, it, you know, it's, it's defining us more and more and we have to we have to fight it. Absolutely. I You know, this idea of virtue is so fascinating to me, like reading changes your heart as you read it and you encounter other people's ideas, they change you, which is a big driving idea in your book. And it reminded me of like a virtuous cycle, right? So like you read and that drives you to want to then read more. That kind of draws you then again to live differently, which wants you to read more. Uh, And so this idea of a virtuous cycle, when when we live virtuously Mm. or do the right things, and encounter people that call us to live a certain way, then we want more of that. Uh, so I was going to ask you the question in light of that, like, what does that look like in your life? Do you have cycles of like the kinds of books that you've like, do you read them in like clusters of certain ideas? Or do you do you just say, man, I've been reading about these things for a little while. And now I want to go look at a different area of my life that I want to be challenged in or a different writing style or people from different backgrounds, you know, I'm going to read Russian people for a little bit and I'm going to read people, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to go read some different writers from different experiences than my own. What does that look like for you? Well, a great deal of it is not, is, is not my choice, you know, in a good way. I mean, I'm, I'm a, an English professor, so I teach classes and I'm you know, signing texts and I'm reading or rereading them myself or reading things about them. So you know, at least half of my reading life is dictated by what I happen to be teaching or being, you know, or preparing to teach. And then, um, and then in, in terms of what else I might pick up um, just by my own choice in my leisure time, what little remains, um, you know, some of that is actually because of things I might be writing. So that's, you know, my other job. Um, but if, if I'm just picking up during a break, a novel that I want to read, I will you know, I have developed my own preferences and tastes, as we all do. And so I definitely, you know, my area of specialty is 18th century British literature. So I love British and European literature, 18th, 19th century. Um, so I, I want to read those works, but I stretch myself by reading, for example, you know, uh, An American Marriage, uh, a new best-selling novel by an African-American writer. And, and I'm, so I'm trying to stretch myself by reading more contemporary literature, or I'll go and read a classic that I've just never got around to reading because that, you know, that 
store is never exhausted. Um, so it's pretty capricious, I guess, mm-hmm. just trying to round myself out and balance what I think I need to do to stretch myself and then just sort of my, my comfort reading, um, which would be, you know, Jane Austen or Edith Wharton or someone like that. <laughs> I love what you just said there, though, because what you're pointing out is that it's a journey. It's not a formula, right? So you're having to do the things you have to, which everybody's busy. But you're also saying, well, what is something that I'm like intrigued by? So I'm just going to follow that. And then through that, that path, I may discover something that I never thought I'd ever get to. So uh, in light of that, like, uh, if somebody's getting started in reading and they're like, I, I read your book or I heard this idea of like reading virtuously, I've never really thought about doing it that way. Is there a recommendation for somebody who's like, I'm trying to think this way, you know, get started in this kind of world uh, or thinking this way and I've never done this before? What would you recommend them starting out with? Well, I, I give, you know, I try to give a lot of those kinds of tips in the introductory chapter, and I hope that inspires people. One of the things that, that I um, talk about is that there are so many good books out there, and no one's going to read them all. So I really encourage people to to read something that does give them joy and pleasure. So if you pick up a book and you just, you know, you just cannot handle war and peace and all those Russian names and all those, you know, those different, all those subplots, that's fine. There, there's, there's great, more great literature out there that, you know, if it's going to take you two years to get through because you hate it so much, then pick up something that you enjoy more. Um, yet on the other hand, don't, you know, don't um, shy away from a challenge um, because we're not reading as a race and trying to read as fast as we can. So, pick up something that you enjoy and that challenges you a little bit, whether it's different ideas or older language or just a different style than uh, what you're accustomed to. Um, And just experiment with it. And for, you know, I think C.S. Lewis says something like for every, you know, for every four new books that you read, read an old one. My formula Mm -hmm. for myself is a little bit reversed. I have to force myself to read the new ones, but Mm -hmm. we all should be stretching ourselves a little bit and, um, and, and go by, Go by reputation. Reputation, you know, it's not a, a 100% infallible formula, but, you know, if a work has passed the test of time, if a lot of critics are praising it, or even, you know, reviews right now are praising it, you know, there is some value in the collective voice of our community, of, of people who know more than we do about, you know, whether we're talking about books or films. Um, and so something that is praiseworthy um, by a lot of people, that doesn't mean it's perfect. That doesn't mean it's entirely compatible with a biblical worldview, but it means that a lot of people have found something of value in it. So let's go see what that is. So on reading well uh, is, is about literature and, and the cultivation of virtue. And so one of the questions I have for you is, is what actually is the virtuous life, according to Karen Swallow Pryor, and how do we cultivate that? Well, the virtuous life, according to Karen Swallow Pryor, is Aristotle's definition. <laughs> um, um, I really, you know, Aristotle is sort of the the, the father of uh, virtue ethics, and everything else is a, is a footnote. Um, but his, I really do believe that his his idea is biblical wisdom, really, even though he obviously was pre-Christian. For Aristotle, virtue is the mean or moderation between two extremes, an extreme of excess and an extreme of deficiency. 
And so, you know, we have this saying like too, something could be too much of a good thing. Well, that's the extreme of excess. Um, and often in our culture, we think that if something's good, well, more of it is better. And that's just simply not true. So Aristotle defined, you know, he's basically looking for all of the qualities that mark human excellence. And then later on, Christian theologians like Aquinas, you know, added to the list and and um, added biblical wisdom to this idea. But if we take, for example, courage, which is a good example to start with, if we have too much of, of that kind of boldness that can give us courage, that actually becomes recklessness. And of course, too little is cowardice. And so um, I think everywhere we look, like out on the internet, we, we have so much confusion over what constitutes courage. It's not just being bold or brash and not caring what anyone thinks. That's not courage. Um, because there, Aristotle also was very clear that that nothing is virtuous apart from the other virtues. So you, if you're doing something boldly that doesn't preserve the good, then that's not virtuous courage either. You know, it's like loyalty. Loyalty itself is not good if it's loyalty to something that is evil or corrupt. And so the virtuous life, I think, ultimately is look is aspiring to those qualities that make human beings made in God's image the best that, that we can be as human beings and not, you know, not having too much of that quality or too little of that quality. And in some ways, what I love about this idea is that it's very sensitive to cultural context um, because, you know, human culture changes and, and, and what's, what's virtuous in one context, and I'm not talking about relativism at all, um, but what, what's courageous in one context isn't in another. And so we're constantly have to be looking at what preserves the good um, and what practical wisdom looks like, uh, which is prudence, you know, what's mm-hmm. wise in one situation may not be in another. And so, yeah, you, you, I could just go on and on. Well, I could write a book about it. I did. That's right. <laughs> you know, I, I would be curious to know, I mean, and we could say maybe living or deceased, but who, who of the Christian authors that when you read, they cause you to kind of just slow down and have a greater appreciation for the world around you and inspire you um, to to greater love or greater awareness of your surroundings, or who just gives you a sense of of satisfaction. Like this is going to sound really bizarre, but when I read Oliver O'Donovan, and honestly, Oliver Don- mm-hmm. Oliver O'Donovan's political theology, um, like mm-hmm. his understanding of Christ as King, is incredibly satisfying to my soul. And I find in those moments great joy in reading. I mean, he's not an easy read. Uh, he's he, he writes powerfully and beautifully. His sentences or his his um, his sentences can can go for six or seven or eight lines at times. But I feel like I'm having some holy moments when I read Oliver O'Donovan. So I'm just curious, Karen, who Aww. who are some authors that you read right now that that are provoking that same type of response? That's a good question. So, you know, I read a lot more literature than I do, you know, theology mm-hmm. or philosophy. Um, and so when I think about the the Christian writers that really make me take joy in the world and think about the world differently, I mean, one I would go back to is, um, and again, this, this is indicative of my own taste and personality, but Jonathan Swift, who wrote a lot of satire, but was 
an Anglican clergyman writing in the 18th century and situated sort of in between so many conflicting ideas and parties and countries even, because he was an Englishman living and serving the Irish people. And he mediated in a virtuous way all of these competing ideas and tried to um, tried to correct the excesses of his age, the excessive rationalism, the excessive empiricism, the excessive pride in human accomplishment. Um, so he does this in a very you know satirical and philosophical way. Um, it's, his stuff isn't always an easy read, but it, it always makes me see things in the world today a little bit differently. And I would say, you know, I, I often like to, I, I do mock people for often assuming that the only Christian writers who write literature are C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Um, but I I really do appreciate Lewis's yeah. um, nonfiction. You know, I, I drew on the four loves. He has a way, he, he he's virtuous too, because he, in the way that he navigates, you know, he holds to Christian truth, but is sensitive too to the surrounding you know, cultural air and, and just kind of draws from, his, he knows his own culture um, and is able to respond to it effectively w- with, you know, the truth of Christianity. That's so funny that you bring up C- C.S. Lewis. I was going to ask you a question about C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. But, but I, hopefully it's a little bit of a uh, something that you could help me with, because I thought C.S. Lewis would be a good person for us to reference since many people have read his stuff, specifically his Narnian mm-hmm. Chronicles. Um, so here's the thing. Like, I I grew up reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I remember reading it when I was pretty young. My parents read it to me. And then when I was in college, one of my fondest memories was going on a long road trip in Columbia with my college roommate, my family, and we read those books to each other aloud, which was really interesting. And then now as a parent, I actually have been reading it to my first grader and she's just eating it up and she's starting to read it back to me. So it's kind of interesting to see how that book like really like resonates just on a surface level of the stories. But the reason why I thought it'd be fun to talk about this is because many people are very aware of the stories, but um, aren't really aware of like what Lewis is doing in a lot of them. And I think it ties into what you're doing when you're talking about reading virtuously. Like one of the things that's so fascinating is how Lewis tells a story on multiple levels. And sometimes he's just telling a story like the silver chair, for example, you know, they're, they're going through things and then he recreates Plato's cave, right? When they're t- start talking about whether the sun mm-hmm. is real and he just brings that right in. And most of us never even realized that's what he did. Uh, and so one of the things I think about when I was reading your book, when I was thinking about like reading virtuously, it seems that, that authors often will put these like Easter eggs into their books <laughs> to make you to think. And you seem to have a very well-developed skill set to identify those and bring those to light. It's like, hey, this is something that they're really doing in this portion. They're just like Lewis, you know, even like when they're talking about it always snowing, always being winter and never Christmas. You know, he's doing something in that first book where he's talking about how, you know, uh, there's sometimes just a deep sadness people are really wrestling with. Um, how do you identify a deeper level that's being put into a book within the larger narrative? What, what things just kind of like are things that like maybe just two or three things you're like, okay, I need to think deeper about this. This is an area I'm going to pull, hmm. pull out my pen. I'm going to underline this. Is there something that authors usually do to tip people off or do you just need to be well-read in classics? 
Well, I, I, well, so, all right. So you've hit on something that could be a little, little delicate and touching here. So, um, I would argue that good authors, the, the best authors actually don't do that sort of thing on purpose or with intention. And I, I know, you know, Lewis, there's debate about how much he did or didn't and, you know, um, mm-hmm. or, or how much he admitted that he did that. Um, but I think good authors, so much of it is, is instinctive and they are good authors or good artists of any kind are just instinctively kind of reflecting reality and the truth of reality. And this is why, this is why non-Christian authors who write great literature are able to write great literature because they are reflecting, um, you know, the, the reality of the universe as God created it, whether they, you know, are intending to do that or not, but that's what makes them great. And so, um, so sometimes, you know, it's just a, it's, it's a balance. I think good writers are intentional about crafting and organizing and structuring and developing characters. But, but often like with Flannery O'Connor, she's, you know, she's a contemporary writer who's written and spoken a lot about her craft and she will be, she's very transparent about saying, you know, I had no idea what was going to happen with this story. I didn't even know this character is going to come along. Um, but the, they are good at the craft. So therefore the craft itself um, reflects life and reality and, and even, you know, fantasy um, does reflect, you know, the order of the universe, even indirectly. Um, it, it, and if it doesn't, then it's not good. And so to be a reader and to see that, I think to be a good reader is almost to replicate what a good writer does, which is to just simply see the patterns and the resonances and the significance and meaning of the things in the world around us to see, again, I'll echo Flannery O'Connor to see the mystery in the manners or to see sort of the spiritual truth that's in the tangible concrete reality that we live in. Karen, we're going to kind of begin wrapping up here and want to conclude with a last question that is way less serious than the conversation we've had, because this has been a great conversation, but I always like to ask a guess if, if you can, craft what your ideal day would be from sunup to sundown. What does your ideal day look like? Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's a fun question and, and not hard to answer. So, um, <laughs> it, I, and I, and most of my days are ideal days. Really. I've been so thankful to the Lord because I, my, my joys are simple. Um, I get up, and um, do my barn chores. And if I can go running in the morning, um, which I don't get to do every day, go running in the morning, um, then go teach. Um, Well, usually I teach late. I like teaching later. So spend some time writing, reading, teaching, and then be home early (laughs) and go to bed. I mean, I just love I, I love the rhythms of, of a regular day, which includes the exercise, the outdoors, the reading, the writing, the teaching. Um, that's my ideal day. And, and, and usually about 85 degrees and sunny. That's great. I, <laughs> I sympathize with a lot of what you just said, that these, those sacred routines that you think are just ordinary, they provide so much like stability and meaning to life and, and great uh, mm-hmm. lots of joy. Hey, one last quick question is, just how's your recuperation and, and healing gone? Uh, I, I know you've you've made an incredible rebound, but just wanted to to check up and, and see how you're doing. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, I am just so thankful. I um, 
I'm, I am back to running. I'm back to, I'm back in the gym and just, um, getting back to my, my pre-accident weights, <laughs> which weren't that much, but you know, it's still an accomplishment. Um, and, um, you know, I have a little residual pain, um, my most severe injury involved putting a, a large pelvic screw in. And so that's where, uh, my residual pain is, but it's, it's not, it's really more of a reminder, um, at times and it's not, it's, it's very manageable. And I, I'm just, I just, I get really thankful just filled with gratitude when I walk upstairs or when I make yeah, the bed, just because those are things that I couldn't do for, for a while. And, um, I'm just really thankful to the Lord and thankful that I'm doing so well. That is so wonderful to hear that you're feeling so much better, Karen. And uh, we just want to really thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it's been enlightening to hear your thoughts on virtue and reading. It's been really, really challenging for me as I'm going to be reading later on the day to take for your all doctoral these studies. Yeah. Actually, I think <laughs> <laughs> I got like three or four different areas I wanted to read today. But yeah, that's one of them. And so I'm just, I'm really grateful that you took this time to be with us. Well, I'm honored to be on the podcast, and I hope it blesses those who are listening. I, I am absolutely 100% sure that it is. So I just want to thank you. I want to thank our crew that's listening right now. Thank you guys for listening in to our conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor. For myself, for Andrew, and for Karen, we really enjoyed this time with you. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time on the Counter Moves podcast. Keep on reading and dreaming. Mm-hmm.